church leadership is messy. In the church that we planted in Montana, um, I will never forget the day that I had to physically restrain a woman, um, like literally pick her up off the ground um, to keep her from viciously attacking her husband uh, physically and beating him um, after he had confessed to an affair. You don't mess with Montana women. Um, but I had to. And, and leadership is, is messy. In 2013, my father preached a sermon on the exclusive claims of Jesus. And immediately following the message, he said, I could see the guy coming down the aisle. This guy made a beeline for him, put his finger in my dad's face and said, how can you be so arrogant? Church leadership is messy. A friend of mine who works a full-time job and pastors a small church, which is also a full-time job, was told by one of his elders that he should not preach on being a servant but should instead, and this is a direct quote, spend more of your time with the older saved members of the church than younger unsaved members of the community, end quote. (laughs) Church leadership is messy. A classmate of mine from Ozark told me that his first funeral ever in ministry, right out of school, was for a baby that was found in a garbage bag in the rental house of a 19-year-old teenage daughter of a woman that was a member of that church. It was all over the local news. It turns out the girl had the baby and killed it. No one had even known that she was pregnant. Um, He did the funeral on the same day the mother went to prison. Church leadership is messy. It is a messy, messy job. And the reason that it's a messy job is that you work primarily with people. And people's lives are messy. Can, can I pull the curtain back a little bit? Can I let you peek behind it just, just a bit to tell you that pastors have a saying that goes like this. Ministry would be a great job if it weren't for all those people. <laughs> it's a joke. Relax. We love you. See, 1 Corinthians teaches us that the sin-shattered mess of our life is transformed by the blood of Jesus into a beautiful stained glass window through which God's grace can shine upon the world. So I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 today. Thank you so much for being here. For those of you joining us here in the room, I'm grateful that you came. For those of you watching online, thanks for logging in. And whether you've been here in the room or online, please fill out a connection card. Uh, Help us stay in touch with you. Um, One thing we want to let you know about before we go any further is that we have a really exciting Sunday coming in about a month, okay? Uh, September 19th is National Back to Church Sunday. Uh, before we, to my knowledge, Chapel Rock has never celebrated that. Certainly not in the five years plus I've been here. I don't think before that, <laughs> Fred, Fred used a great word. He goes, it's kind of been a gimmick. And I think it has kind of felt that way until this year. This year, for whatever reason, it feels like something we should do. And, and so we're going to throw a big party on September 19th for National Back to Church Sunday. It's going to be a great day for you to invite your friends. We're finishing up this messy church series. I'm preaching from 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection. 
and what it's going to be like. So man, oh man, if you've got a, Christ, a friend who's not a Christian, bring them that day. We're also going to have food trucks in the parking lot, inflatables for the kids, other fun stuff we're still working on dialing in. It's going to be a blast. So if you've got a friend, be thinking about that. For those of you watching online, I would just want you to know we've continued to keep the sides socially distanced and, and, and the balcony, there's plenty of space up there. Like that one up there, there's only two folks in the whole thing. So if you've been like, I don't know, should I come, should I not? I would really encourage you to try to make that day uh, a specific emphasis uh, for you to be here. And we're just going to have a big party together and celebrate being together uh, that morning. So that'll be, uh, you, there's, some, there's an announcement about it in your bulletin. Uh, there's also, uh, we'll have more information as the, as the weeks roll by. Next, we're going to need some help pulling this off too. So next Sunday, you're going to see a kiosk in the lobby uh, up with places to serve that way uh, and get involved. And it's kind of National Back to Church weekend too, okay? Because the Friday prior on the 17th uh, is the, the um, fall party for the kids out at Nehemiah Ranch. And so the, we're going to have, just that whole weekend is going to be a great uh, a great time for our church family. I want to encourage you to just put that on your calendar and block off some time uh, for that this coming week. Like I said, we're continuing our series through 1 Corinthians called Messy Church Today. Last week, we talked about how messed up the priorities of the Corinthian church were. Their priorities, though, weren't the only mess that they were dealing with. There was lots of them, and one of the ways was the way that they thought about church leadership. Corinth was a city with a long history of trade and cultural importance. First in the classical era in Greece, about 500 years before the time of Jesus, and then later as a colony, which was a big deal in the Roman Empire. There were cities all over, and you can see there where Corinth is located. So Achaia, that's modern-day Greece, all right? You see in the upper left corner, there's Italy. Um, so Corinth is on this, that's the technical cartographer term, is isthmus, this land bridge between the Peloponnesian Peninsula, you see that there below, the Peloponnese, uh, there below, and then the, the rest of Greece uh, above it. Um, Corinth was, was blessed for a long time with what was in the ancient world uncommon amount of, you know, excellent um, leadership and political and economic stability. Uh, this was due in part because they just, they were led so well. They, Corinth was just blessed for a long time to have great civic leaders. They anticipated change and they welcomed it. They had a diversified and very productive economy. There was a lot of money in Corinth. I, I want to show you this. Here's, here's another map, all right? You can see the, the pin where Corinth is. This land bridge was not terribly high. Like, they, they had figured out a way to drag boats up out of the water, over it, and drop them back in on the thing down the side. And you can see, you know, the blue line there on the map is a whole lot shorter than the red line. This saved possibly days of sailing time. It, it, would, it would get ships from the Aegean into the Ionian Sea without going all the way out into the middle of the Mediterranean. And so every time a boat went over the land bridge, cha-ching, 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 Corinth made money. And they had figured, the, the leaders of that community welcomed this change. They, they were innovative. They were good, stable leaders. And, and because of that, the people of Corinth had enjoyed and appreciated good leadership. Which is why when Paul writes to them about the way their leaders are behaving, it's a bit of a smackdown. They, they kind of deserve this rebuke because they should know better. All right? 
I'm going to tip my hand right here at the beginning, and, and because this passage today can seem kind of scattered unless you look at it through the right frame, and I want to give you a window frame to look at it. Here's, here's the framework, okay? Christian leaders express God's grace by finding ways to engage in the messy lives of people. Christian leaders express God's grace to the church and the world around it, really, by finding ways to engage in the messy lives of people. And this passage, chapter 3 and 4, gives us five ways that church leaders do this. And so what I want to do is, is put the image in your mind of a beautiful stained glass window. You know, when you look at a stained glass window, they have panels, right? There's this panel and there's this panel. So I want to give you these panels, five panels that are images in the text that help us understand how church leaders deal with the messy lives of the people in, in the church bodies that they're part of. And what you're going to notice as you look at these five panels is that Paul really kind of moves freely from image to image throughout the text. And rather than just go straight down through the, the text and go, well, this is this and then this is that, it feels a little confusing. We're just going to kind of group them by the image that they're associated with, okay? That'll be our structure today. So here's the first one, number one. Panel number one is a father, that, that leaders engage the mess as a father. You see a beautiful picture here of a father with his son. That may be the father with the son. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to find a description for that one, but I liked it. It was pretty. Um, fathers have an incredible influence over their children. And Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that real Christian leaders function like fathers to the churches that they lead. You, you see this in chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, and then again in chapter 4, verse 14 through 17. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. Let's look at this together. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Implied answer, yes, you are. <laughs> are you not acting like mere humans? Implied answer, yes, you are. For when one says, I follow a Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Picking up a little bit on what we talked about last week. Now skip down to chapter, 14, or chapter 4, verse 14. He says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you, my dear children, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, and that was a specific kind of Roman term for someone who was legally appointed to help raise a child. It, it, it's, it's not just like a, um, <laughs> the, new, what, the new baseball team in Cleveland. Uh, it, it's not that. It, it's, it's different, okay? These, these guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. In chapter 3, Paul calls them brothers, but he addresses them as if a, it, he's a father rebuking his children. Three times, he calls the church worldly. The word literally means fleshly or carnal. Even though they were saved, they're still ruled by their appetites. They're not yet truly spiritual. He calls them mere humans. Now, for someone who has the Spirit of God indwelling in them, that's kind of a put down. He, he's getting up in their grill a little bit. He's trying to shock them into awareness. It's fatherly correction. He's telling them, you may be saved, but you're acting like non-Christians. 
He says, you're, you're like babies. Now, if you've ever spent much time around babies, you know that they just, they're reacting to the physical stimuli that they're experiencing. You can't reason with an infant. You, you can't. They, they just, they, they're not there yet. They're not developmentally, they're not able to do that. It's kind of hard to do it with a toddler, frankly. Try having an argument with my son Ephraim. He just, logic, out the window. Like, you know, he just, he knows what he needs and, and more or less communicates. Sometimes you have to wait a little bit for the word to load, um, you know, before he says it. But he's telling him, knock it off. He's accusing them here of being immature. In chapter 4, verse 15, Paul will say, you've got lots of teachers. I'm the only spiritual father that you have. And the language around that is incredibly tender. I mean, he's, he's kind of getting up in their face a little bit, but the, the language here is very, very tender and loving. I, I want you to imagine the best. Some of you had a great father growing up. You had a great example, someone who, who really encouraged you. They were just a good dad. Um, <laughs> Brian Regan is a comedian, and he, he's talking about the problems in our country. He goes, I think what our country needs right now is just a good dad, you know? And some, but some of you didn't have that growing up. And, and you, you didn't have a great father figure to look at. Or maybe there wasn't a father figure at all to look at. Maybe it was someone in the church and not someone in your home. So for you, it might have to be an image from TV and film and, and media. Maybe for some of you, it's somebody like Andy Griffith. He's good, a good dad. He's a good father. And in one episode, I was with my family, and I, I saw an episode of the Andy Griffith show. It was a great example of the kind of fatherly correction that Paul is talking about here. Opie has a friend named Arnold. This kid is a spoiled brat. I think his dad's got money, and uh, he's given his son whatever he wants without really critiquing him. And Arnold is caught by Barney and Andy riding his bike on the sidewalk, which is against the law in Mayberry. And Arnold's father tries to intervene for his son. He sees his son's lack of character exposed. I want you to watch how Andy helps the, father, the boy's father become a better dad. Check this out. A real old-fashioned woodshed. It's real nice. Sometimes church leaders need to engage the mess as fathers. Lovingly rebuke church members when they're being carnal or spiritually immature. I cannot tell you the number of times over the last 20 years that I have thought and not said, I'd like to put you over my knee. To people who are my age or older, grow up. One of the biggest problems with the American church, I think, is that for far too long, we have settled for a sip of a milkshake when God is out in the back patio preparing a nice juicy steak. Time to grow up. And so our leaders have to engage the mess as fathers and help us grow up. There's another image that Paul uses in this text. The second panel is that of a father. Or excuse me, a farmer. The leaders engage the mess as farmers. I want you to look with me at chapter 3, verse 5 through 9. Look at this. Paul writes, What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Notice the continuing action there. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have the same purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. 
Here, Paul switches the image to one of an agricultural image. He downplays the importance of individual leaders, saying that they're just servants in God's larger plan to help his people grow and be built into the temple of Jesus. I mean, Paul's aware of his own role in their salvation. He planted this church. He started it. He's the one who planted the seed. He knows very well his role here. He's not boasting. He's just stating a fact. I used to work with a guy at the sign company in college. His name was Randy. Um, cool dude. But he, he was our shop manager. And he would say, he goes, it ain't bragging if you can do it. You know, and that was, that's kind of, he's not bragging here. He's just acknowledging a fact. I started this church. I planted the seed. Apollos, one of his coworkers, watered it. God's the one who made it grow. He's very conscious that only God gives growth. And the same that's true in the lives of people is true in the life of the church. The word translated grow here in chapter 3, verse 6, is one that means growth all by itself. The church is designed to grow, and only God can make that happen, though it's easily observed that he most often does this in soil that's been carefully and lovingly tended by its leaders. This is so interesting. Paul says, you are our product Disciples living in the grace of God, multiplying themselves in the, in the power of the Spirit. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples is the church's product. The church should be cranking them out. <laughs> and that would have resonated with the Corinthians because Corinth was a hub of, of trade and commerce for a thousand years by Paul's time. When Paul wrote this, Corinth had been an economic powerhouse for a millennium already, partly due to their influence in agriculture and shipping goods and products around the Mediterranean. Paul's using this farming image to try to get his people to, to take this seriously and to try to remind the leaders about what they're about, that they need to be discipling people who disciple people who disciple people. I heard a story about a guy named Joe. Joe was born and bred in New York City, but eventually just kind of tired of the busyness of the city, was ready for a change, decided he was going to move the country. So he bought a farm in upstate New York, moved up there, went to the local farm and home store and, and, and talked to the guy at the livestock counter about, he's going to start with some chickens. So he, he said, I'd like to place an order for 100 chicks. And I said, wow, 100. And you know, he's New York City, right? That typical New York City intensity, looked at him, I mean business. Okay. So he placed the order. He said, it'll be in a couple days. You can come back in and pick them up. So a couple days later, Joe comes in, picks up the chicks, you know, a little box with holes in it, right? And he goes home and he's gone for about a week. About a week later, he comes back into the farm and home store. And he goes up to the proprietor and he said, I, I, need, to, um, I need to place an order for another 100 chicks. And the guy's like, wow, you are serious about this. He goes, yeah, I just got to work out a couple problems problems. What do you mean? He said, well, I don't know. It just, something happened. I think I planted the first batch too close. <laughs> City boy. See, one of the things that church leaders have to always keep in mind is that people's lives are messy. It takes time for God's grace to grow in them. This is really kind of the balance <laughs> of the image before we talked about a father. Come on, grow up, grow up. But we need the farmer image too. That says they gotta have time. Growing takes time. 
And there's that, that sense where the two have to come together in, in the same leader. God is teaching our leaders to be patient with the church. So be patient with them as they learn. There's another panel in the text, another image, and it's that of a builder. That leaders engage the mess as builders. You can see this in a couple places. Look with me at chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Look at this. Chapter 3, verse 10 says, by, God's, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, and notice the capitalization there, that's judgment day, the day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames." Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? He's going to come back to this in a couple weeks. Or rather, in the passage we'll look at next week, a couple chapters rather. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. And then in chapter 4, verse 11, he also picks up this building image. Look at this, chapter 4, verse 11 says, To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. He talks about how hard they're working to build this thing called the church. So Paul's leadership in their lives here is attributed to an act of God's grace. I want you to hear me. Spiritual leaders lead because of God's grace in their life, and they lead by God's grace expressed to his people through them. They lead because of grace, and they lead by grace. It is both the cause and the means of Christian leadership. Grace starts it. Grace sustains it. And leaders engage the messy lives of people when they help them build on the foundation of Jesus and invest in something that will survive Judgment Day. Several years ago, we tore the roof off our house at the time, and a buddy of mine named Jeremy helped me uh, do that. And you know, we we did the tear off, uh, and then we paid a contractor to actually put the roof back on, you know, right. <laughs> uh, and, and and later, I really regretted not paying some college guys to do it for me, but. Um, I, then I helped my buddy Jeremy just a few weeks later do the same thing at his house. Now, I didn't know what I was doing. I had to have, you know, good help. I can tear something up just fine, but putting it back together, I need help, right? Jeremy and his dad had done some contracting work before. They knew what they were doing. And so I'm, I'm watching them. Just, I'm up there just ripping shingle off, and, and I'm watching these guys, and I wish I had a dollar for every time as they begin to peel back the layers on this roof that Jeremy or his dad said something to the effect of, what in the world were these people thinking? You tear into someone else's work, it can get messy. The word that Paul used here translated wise builder was a very specific word. It's the root of our word architect and referred to a builder who had drawn up the plans themselves but then stuck around to supervise the construction. It's, it's this idea of the design builder, the, the, guy, who, the guy who's both. 
right? They, they show up on site. They supervise the work. Part of the way that leaders make a difference in people's messy lives is by getting their hands dirty in building them up. And leaders have to build on the right foundation. He says here, you can't buy this. He talks about gold and gems and precious stones. You can't buy this. <laughs> you just got to get in there and mix it up with people and get your hands dirty. We talked last week about the priority of Jesus. If you try to build on anything else, the wisdom of this world, putting on a good show on Sunday, Paul says it will be shown for what it is and it will burn. You have to build on Jesus. Good leaders do that. And knowing how to do that takes wisdom and that's the next panel. Panel four is that of a sage, a wise person. Leaders engage the mess as sages. We, we see this in the fourth panel. Look with me at chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools, note the quotes, so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. And then you see this again in chapter four, uh, verse eight. Look at this. Chapter four, verse eight says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich, you've begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of a procession like those condemned to die. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. We are dishonored, you are honored, but we are dishonored. In, in chapter 3, Paul picks up again on some of the language that was at the end of chapter 1. By chapter 4, the third time he's addressing this topic, he, he kind of takes on a bit of a mocking tone, doesn't he? He gets a little sarcastic. Now, some of you might struggle with that, but you need to understand, Paul, Jesus, <laughs> uh, whoever wrote Hebrews, maybe Apollos, sarcasm is not necessarily a sin, because all three of them did it, right? They, they occasionally get a little snarky with their readers, Paul does it here. He's kind of making fun of them for thinking they've got it all figured out and they can't even recognize that they're elevating teachers who don't have nearly the same credentials that Paul does. Leaders in the church need to be sages. They need to be wise. And part of the way that they engage the mess of people's lives is to have enough experience under their belt to offer wisdom when it's needed, whether it's wanted or not. And that generally comes with age. It doesn't have to. I, I routinely challenge our staff and elders to keep learning. Nobody can be an expert on everything, right? We need each other. That's why there has to be a plurality of leaders. You know, I'll occasionally ask the staff in staff meeting, we'll have a reading checkup. We go around the table. What are you reading? What are you learning right now? Share with the rest of the group. You know, and it varies widely. Sometimes it's history. Sometimes it's a devotional thought. Sometimes it's something theological. Sometimes it's something awesome like Lord of the Rings, I mean, whatever, you know, I mean, like, um, do you know that we have a two-year training process to become an elder here? If you want to be an elder at Chapel Rock, there's a two-year training process. You spent a year apprentice to an individual elder and then a, another year as an apprentice elder. There's literally a reading list. There's homework if you want to lead here. 
Why? Because leaders have to be sages. They have to be wise. There's a reason that the New Testament lists the ability to teach as a requirement for being an elder. They have to have, someone who's a sage has a constant urge to share the wisdom and wit that they've acquired over the years. And when they see someone whose life is a mess, there's this innate sense, I need, I can help clean this. I can help you. And they want to share what they've learned. That's part of what it means to be a sage. Listen, God is incomparably wiser than we are. So boasting in our own human wisdom is complete and utter foolishness, Paul says. The role of a Christian leader is to be constantly tapping into the wisdom of God and sharing it. And that's a trust given to them that they need to faithfully execute. And that's the fifth panel. It's that of a steward. That of a steward. You see the stained glass image of the the parable of the, you know, um, talents there. Leaders engage the mess as stewards. We see this in chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. Look at this with me. Chapter 4, verse 1. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of the one who is over, follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? The the final image here is that of a steward. Now, there are a couple words that Paul uses here that are significant. The word translated servants in chapter 4, verse 1, is one that had a general meaning of a a servant or attendant. Here it means a subordinate uh, servant functioning as a free man, not as a slave. And so Paul and Apollos are free servants of Christ, fully responsible to him and not the Corinthians. He's like, I'm a servant of Jesus, not yours. I'm serving you, but I, I, I belong to Jesus, he says. But he also says that his missionary team is those entrusted with the secret things of God. The word there, translated entrusted with, is a specific term for a position often held by a slave who managed the affairs of the household entrusted to him or her. Paul's saying that he is a steward, he's a caretaker, and a servant, he's charged with the duty of spreading the gospel. Christian leaders understand that they've been given authority in the church, not by a vote, but by appointment from their predecessors that's been handed down essentially since the time of Jesus. I need you to understand this. This is tough for American Christians to get their heads around, but it's really important to me that you understand this. All authority in the church is delegated authority. All of it. Every ounce, every drop is delegated and it comes from Jesus. Now, our Catholic friends have made this an official like doctrine and it's part of the whole priesthood and the Pope and all that stuff. I don't know about that. I, I think they're a little off base there. Okay, a lot. But the idea, the principle behind it that all authority is delegated authority is spot on. But we voted. Yeah, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the kingdom of God is not Burger King. You don't get to have it your way. 
You're a steward. Leaders are stewards. They have delegated, appointed authority. And when they function within that framework, I believe God blesses their leadership. Paul understands his role as an apostle to the Gentiles. He's willingly accepted the mantle of that responsibility. And leaders who try to lead without fully accepting the mantle of leadership create messes. If they want the privileges but not the responsibility, it makes a mess. Leadership is messy because it often demands far more of the leader than of those being led. The founder of the Jesuit movement, Ignatius Loyola, said this, Teach us, Lord, to serve you as you deserve to give and not count the cost, to fight and not heed the wounds, to toil and not seek for rest, to labor and not ask for any reward save that of knowing that we do your will. That's real leadership. And y'all, that's messy. Did you hear me today? Did you get what I've been trying to teach you? That Christian leaders express God's grace by finding ways to engage in the messy lives of people. And they do that by being fathers and by being farmers and by being builders and by being sages and stewards. Now here's the thing. To do all of those things is practically impossible. To do all that stuff equally well all the time is impossible. Nobody can do that. Well, there was this one guy. Jesus was a steward of what God gave him. When he said, it is finished on the cross, it's because he had completed the task God sent him to do. Jesus was a sage. He was the word incarnate. He was the wisdom of God made manifest for us to learn from, to orient our lives around. He was the builder, the wise builder who built on a solid foundation. He's the farmer who plants his spirit in our life and and waters it and makes it grow into a beautiful harvest of righteousness. And he is the father, not theologically speaking, the image wise, who disciplines us when we need it, but ultimately is one of love. We're going to have a time of response right now. And I would, I would challenge you to use those five images and think about how, what, what you need from Jesus today. Maybe, maybe you know you've been entrusted with a task. He's given you a responsibility and you're wrestling with how to do that. Maybe you want someone to pray with you. We'd be happy to do that. Maybe you've not been as faithful in the task as you know you should be. And it's just an opportunity to repent and renew that commitment to him. Maybe you're wrestling with something in your life right now where you need wisdom. You need the sage of Jesus. And and you know that you've not spent your time listening to him like you should. You need to take the time to do that. Read the words in red. And listen to the wisdom of Jesus. Maybe you've been building your life on something. That judgment day may prove to be not a very good foundation. And, and, and need to change what you're building on. Maybe you sow your wild oats all week and come to church and pray for a crop failure. It's not the way God wants you to live. He wants to grow something different in you. And maybe you're here today and you need to go to the Father who loves you and experience his love and, and say, I, I, I want to be your child. 
I want to give you my life and, and have you sign my adoption papers in your blood and, and be baptized and begin that, that new walk with Jesus. We're going we're gonna to stand together. I want you to stand with me and we're going to sing. And I want you to respond and follow the leadership of Jesus as he leads you today.